And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it is uh, Monday again, unfortunately, as uh, we have the whole week ahead of us. Uh, in the midst of August, of course, that means it's also hot. It also means that we're now wrapping up the bulk of S&P 500 earnings. By the end of this week, we'll have over 80% of all S&P 500 companies pretty much will have reported. Uh, so we've got a really good look now at how earnings are so far. And they've been okay, right? Earnings are okay. We've got, uh, you know, uh, you know, fairly high beat rate, but that was because we lowered the bar so much. So yes, companies are all beating earnings. That's good news. Um, you know, but again, the quality of the earnings is okay. Um, they haven't been fantastic. They haven't been terrible. They've been okay. And uh, that's enough to help keep supporting the markets. Of course, markets got a bit ahead of, of kind of the earnings themselves. You know, markets kind of running up into earnings season on expectation uh, of earnings being okay. So now markets have been kind of just, you know, kind of consolidating here over the last few days. But, you know, outside of that, and I do want to talk some more about earnings here today as, as, uh, you know, as we get into the show, but, you know, outside of that, it's the economic data that continues to be of some concern. Um, you know, again, we see some of the economic data coming in. Certainly showing some signs of weakness, but kind of like with earnings, this is not terrible. Uh, the employment report on Friday certainly showed some slowing in the employment data, and that's certainly to be expected. As Again, the Fed, Federal Reserve is hiking interest rates specifically to slow down economic activity, and that will ultimately reduce hiring and, and employment. Again, this is what the Fed said, is they're looking for the unemployment rate to rise to between four and five percent and that would be kind of their mark to make sure that inflation comes down and stays down right that's the the fed's goal is to get inflation back under control but you know it's, it's so ironic when the fed talks about inflation because between 2008 and 2020 really 2020 uh, before the pandemic shutdown, the Fed was like, man, if we could just get to 2% inflation, this would be awesome. And so we're doing all this type of monetary stimulus and uh, input, and whether it's QE programs or Operation Twist, whatever it was, trying to get inflation up. Why? Because economic growth remained weak. We just kind of chugged along right around 2%, and that's about where inflation was running. And uh, the Fed just wanted a little bit more inflation. Why? Why, why does the Fed want some inflation, right? Inflation's good. Um, to a degree, right? Inflation's good to a degree, and then if inflation gets too high, then it's problematic. But there's a sweet spot for inflation that tracks along with economic growth. So if you're trying to get 2% economic growth out of the economy, then inflation should run about 2%. Uh, there's a long-term historical correlation of that. So if I could get to 3% economic growth, then I should have 3% inflation. But see, that's better because I'm getting stronger economic growth as remember as an economy and as consumers we have to produce first <clears throat> in order to have money to spend right so brent has to come to work he has to do a job we pay him to do his job he now has income to go spend and he goes home and spends his entire paycheck on his electric bill um <laughs> because we because we live in texas um but that's how the, the economy works. So the, if we have stronger economic growth, that means people are making more money. That means they have more money to spend, et cetera. 
And this is why the Federal Reserve has always kind of wanted stronger economic growth and was okay with a little bit more inflation. However, 9% inflation in an environment that should be growing around 2%, obviously not healthy. They want to get that number back down towards their 2% target. Why? Because that's where economic growth is going to wind up, somewhere around 2% or less. And that's where economic growth is slowly dropping down to. And of course, as we see this decline in inflation and we see inflation coming down, then economic growth is going to slow accordingly. And this is going to be the battle for the Fed now is can they keep inflation from dropping below 2% at some point as the economy goes into recession? See, this is, this is the, the hard battle for the Federal Reserve is they're putting the brakes on the economy by hiking rates and somehow magically they think they can just take their foot off the gas at just the right moment to stick that landing of 2% growth in the economy, 2% inflation, and everything would be okay. We'll avoid that recession. That's a pretty handy hat trick if you can make that work, but we'll see what happens. But employment data on Friday is certainly starting to show some signs of slowing down. That's kind of that big warning indicator. Part of that framework that we look at for a recession is, is, is that employment number. So again, employment was okay on Friday, um, but definitely slowing down, at least at the headline for now. We'll see how this plays out over the next month or so. Um, but importantly, coming back to the markets, and this is the thing we got to keep a watch on. So here's what you need to know before the bell this morning is that the markets are still in that correction process that we talked about. You know, it was very interesting. Uh, week before last, we had this big outside reversal day. An outside reversal day, and this, is called, uh, and this is a bearish engulfing pattern if you know candlestick terminology, and it doesn't matter if you don't. Just We had a day where the market opened up strongly and then fell, and we had a big decline that day, and it completely engulfed the positive day that we had the day before. So that's that engulfing pattern that we're talking about here. And normally that's a very bearish sign and suggests that prices are going to go lower near term. Uh, the market did rally for a couple more days, failed to get back to that previous high, turned over, corrected. Um, last week, we took out that first level of support that we've talked about, that 20-day moving average, took that out. And then importantly, on Friday, the market rallied early in the day, and we were actually doing okay on Friday. Market was in the green. Things were looking up until about noon. And the market rallied right into the 20-day moving average from underneath that moving average. Right, So we were below the 20-day, rallied up to it, failed, turned lower, and set a new low. And uh, so that suggests now that really we're probably going to wind up retesting the 50-day moving average here, which is around 4,400-ish uh, 4, right now, uh, 4,390. Um, right around there is, is going to be the 50-day moving average. That seems to be the logical next level of support now, whether or not the market's go straight there over the next couple of days. We get a rally first and then another decline. Who knows how the market's gonna play out. Markets are decently oversold enough on a, on a very short-term basis that we could see a rally. Another attempt back at that 20-day moving average, another failure there would just kind of confirm that we're still in this correction process. If somehow magically the market can rally back above the 20-day and then get to new highs, then this correction process is over. That seems a little bit unlikely just at the moment because, again, as we're kind of looking at things, we're kind of running out of earnings season now. Um, we're moving into a little bit of a seasonally weak period of time. And so a bit more of a struggle here in the markets 
over the course of the next month or so would certainly not be surprising. Work off some of this more extreme overbought, uh, you know, conditions that we've had in the markets on a longer term basis. Some of these big deviations need to kind of tighten up here a bit. So again, I would expect a little bit more turmoil. Again, nothing here suggests that we're going to have a big correction. Nothing here at the moment anyway uh, suggests you're going to have a, you know, like a 20% decline in the market. So that's not really the concern. The concern at the moment, if you want to call it that, is that the markets just needed to take a break. They've really gotten fairly far ahead of themselves. We've had five straight months of advances. So a month or two of a bit of a pullback, correction process, consolidation, certainly a very logical issue. And that would certainly give us a much better opportunity to put some capital at work on a better risk reward basis for potentially another advance into the end of the year. Now, once we get into next year, all bets are kind of off. We'll see what happens when we get there. But again, lots of positive momentum right now, keeping markets intact. So again, look for opportunities to increase risk, but on a, on a more selective basis when you get the opportunity to do so. That's what you need to know before the bell this morning. When we come back, we'll get into a bit more of the economic data, talk some about debt too and what that means. That's all coming up this morning on The Real Investment Show. Be right back. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. So futures are pointing higher this morning, by the way. And, and again, while we're talking about having a little bit more of a correction here in the markets uh, over the next month or so, doesn't mean the markets aren't going to have a little bounce here and there. And, and again, you know, with, you know, kind of where we are right now, I'd use kind of bounces here. If you've got positions that are really overweight, um, you know, you need to kind of, you know, look at maybe taking some profits here or there, just rebalancing your portfolio accordingly. Use these little bounces to do that. And then when the market does kind of get, you know, done with this correctional process, wherever that is, then you'll have some cash available to, you know, add to, you know, positions that have pulled back a bit or, you know, add new positions to your portfolio that you want to do, et cetera. But that's just kind of that gardening process that we talk about, you know, in portfolios all the time. You know, you got to harvest a little bit here and then replant a little bit over there. And, um, you know, maybe you don't need to do anything um, at the moment. And that's okay, too. That doesn't mean you have to do something. It just means that right now we're going to probably have a little bit more of a correctional process. But again, that doesn't mean that you're not going to have stocks kind of bounce short term. And again, markets are up today. You had, you know, we've had basically a, a couple of weeks here of just the markets kind of under pressure. So again, a bit of a bounce here won't be surprising at all. The question will be is, is really twofold. One, can this bounce get us back above that 20-day moving average on the S&P 500? That would be a, a first kind of bullish indication that maybe this correction process is already over. That seems a little unlikely, but we'll see. I mean, that could very well be the case. We're, you know, we've still got a lot of bullish momentum in this market, and there's a lot of portfolio managers kind of behind the curve need to play catch up. So um, there's still a lot of there's still a lot of need to put capital to work into the markets. So again, correction process could be over. We'll see, but probably not. So again, this is why I'm saying use bounces here. But Again, you know, futures are pointing up a little bit this morning. We'll see kind of how this plays out. We've seen these days before where we open a positive and then sell off during the day. And, you know, that's that kind of process the markets are going through right now. 
Um, earnings today, of course, we've got, uh, as I said, we're kind of wrapping up S&P 500 for the most part, but there's still a lot of companies out there that will be reporting the rest of the month. Uh, NVIDIA is the last kind of big horse in terms of the uh, S&P 500, but they report late. They're going to be around August the 22nd, I think. Um, don't quote me on that uh, date, but it's it's later in the month. But today we've got Palantir, uh, Beyond Meat, um, Chegg, Lucid Group, the electric car company, uh, Paramount Global, which um, you know was the is the new kind of subscription pay service for Paramount. Uh, Ring Central, uh, KKR, which is the private equity company, Tyson Foods, Skyworks, and no real consumer, you know, really economic data today. Now later this week, though, we now we just had employment report on Friday. Of course, that you know was positive, but a little bit weaker than what people were expecting. Again, as we said earlier, not surprising. The economy is slowing down. We are seeing some of that data show up that the economy is slowing down. But inflation numbers out later this week, and now it's interesting because expectations are that inflation is going to continue to fall. But as we've talked about before with inflation, a lot of it is this year-over-year math that drives it. And this is really what we're looking at. We talk about headline inflation. We look at that number and we say, okay, oh, inflation was 3%. Well, that was 3% based on year-over-year rates of change. So in other words, inflation is now 3% higher than it was a year ago. So what cost you a dollar last year cost you a dollar three today. So that math, because of the way it works, when you're comparing against a higher or lower number the previous year, it can have a lot to do with what happens with inflation currently. And we've used the, you know, we've used a price, you know, the, the gallon of gas example numerous times, but it's easy. People pay for gas, so you kind of know what a gallon of gas costs. But if you pay for a gallon of gas last year at four dollars and it's still four dollars today, and inflation is zero. So this is important because we're potentially about to enter a period where inflation goes back up. Now, remember, the Fed has been pretty focused on fighting this inflation fight in terms of hiking short-term rates, and they hiked rates in July, and they said, hey, we're going to be data-dependent now, which means they're going to be looking at the data to make their decisions about whether or not hike rates more or to finally pause. Now, the market's expecting the Fed to pause. They're expecting for the most part, that the Fed is now done hiking rates, that July was the last one, and that the next leg of Fed rate movements will be lower later this year and into next year. But that's all predicated on inflation continuing to fall towards that 2% target. But there is a potential, okay? And I'm not saying this is that an absolute certainty, but because of that year-over-year math, that we just talked about, that we could see inflation tick up to 3.2 to 3.4 over the next few months. And then the question will be, and, and, again, and look, the Fed knows this, right? So they're not going to freak out. If inflation goes from 3 to 3.2, they're not going to immediately go, oh, we got to hike rates again. They understand, the, they, they understand the math, right? And this is why they look at a variety of other indicators in terms of 
you know, inflation, they look at core and they look at, you know, core less housing. They look at all these different measures of, of inflation to try to get a read on what inflation is actually doing in the economy because there's going to be some bounces in the data. It's not just going to fall straight down, right? It is declining sharply, and we were talking about this in, in June of, of last year, saying, hey, inflation is going to fall sharply. And the, again, at the time, everyone was like, no, inflation's only going higher. It was like, no, inflation's going to fall. It's a year-over-year math. And, and so we've seen that, that falling rather sharply. But that year-over-year math also is going to play some tricks here now that we've gotten back to these levels because now when we're comparing on a year-over-year basis, we're hearing some numbers on that on those month those monthly numbers are going to start playing some some tricks with the year over year measures. So again, just you know, we'll see this on uh, Wednesday or Thursday of this week. I think it's, uh, on Wednesday we have CPI coming out. So it'll be a first good kind of look, and then of course we'll get the market response. But this is one of those things that that could kind of rumble the market short term, and we'll see because if if the Fed starts to, to uh, sorry if the market starts to think the Fed's going to be Become more aggressive on hiking rates, well, that potentially doesn't bode well for the stock market. And this is particularly the case right now because the NASDAQ in particular is very detached from real rates. And that's because NASDAQ stocks in general, I'm not saying all of them, but in general, most of their NASDAQ stocks are what we call long-duration assets. You're, you're buying companies based on the need for earnings growth, right? The, these companies need to grow rather aggressively to justify the valuations being paid for them in a lot of cases. And so you need time for those earnings to catch up with those companies and the valuations that investors are paying for them. And real rates has a very high correlation to long-duration assets. Well, right now, there's a super big di divergence between real rates and what's happening in the NASDAQ stocks. In other words, stocks have detached from that underlying interest rate environment. In other words, high rates impact companies that need low rates for stronger, economic, for stronger earnings growth over time. And that detachment's got to play catch-up at some point. Either the NASDAQ has to correct at some point or real rates have to catch up with the NASDAQ. And so we'll see what happens. But inflation will start to tell us, give us some more clues about this later this week. But again, there's, there, there is some, some dichotomies occurring in the markets. This momentum run we've had since the beginning of the year has kind of detached markets from kind of some of the underlying fundamentals on expectations that, oh, the Fed's going to stop hiking rates here any moment, start cutting rates, and that's lots of liquidity and monetary accommodation. That's awesome because that drives stocks higher, and I don't want to miss out, so I better buy stocks now. And that FOMO chase has really pushed stocks kind of well out of bounds at the moment. But again, doesn't mean you're going to have a big correction. Doesn't mean that markets are going to crash tomorrow. Doesn't mean any of that momentum can last a lot longer than you expect. But there's certainly some things to be kind of aware of and some things to be kind of focused on as we get later into this year and particularly next year. And again, nobody knows. Nobody knows. Predicting what's going to happen six months from now, nine months from now is a fool's errand because too many things can happen. I mean, we can go back and look at statistics Right, I just posted a chart out this morning on Twitter talking about when the markets have had five months in a row and you're up more than 
over the next 12 months, stocks tend to be higher on average. Well, statistically speaking, and that's a true statement. But the environments previous to this were normal, shall we say? We didn't have this confluence of massive monetary stimulus and, and a reversal of that stimulus and, and having you know, a lot of government liquidity being pumped into the market through things like the Inflation Reduction Act at a time where the Fed's hiking interest rates. It's a very different environment today. So, yes, we can look back in history and say, yes, historically, this has always happened when you've had five straight months up. That momentum tends to carry the markets over the next 12 months. I'm not, I'm not fighting momentum, right? There's definitely momentum in the markets, and we need to be aware of it. We need to respect it. But I'm just saying is that this time is a bit different. I'm not saying this time is absolutely different. I'm just saying there are some different factors today that could potentially undermine some of that historical performance. That's what I'm saying is like, you know, it's impossible to predict six or nine months or 12 months out from now. We just have to manage the markets for what we have today and navigate the markets as they come at us. All right, quick break. We'll come back. More of the Real Investment Show coming up. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com and welcome back to the show this morning so let's talk a little bit about debt uh, particularly government debt you know, it's interesting. Um, I just wrote an article recently talking about $32 trillion and why it matters. But, you know, we're into this phase right now. And again, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, just came out recently and did their projections for government debt through 2053. And just to put it bluntly, it's not pretty. Because, again, this fiscal problem we have. And again, we just talked about, you know, last week, the downgrade by Fitch on U.S. debt. In fact, we wrote about it in this weekend's newsletter on the website as well. Is was based on their downgrade was based on the fact that we just keep doing we raise the debt ceiling um, without any type of fiscal responsibility attached to it. And every time we go into these one of these debt ceiling fights, right, you've either got one side or the other going, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to cut spending and we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and then we'll raise the debt ceiling. And then at the end of the day, everybody just, you know, holds out to the very last minute. And then you get these, you know, statements out from the Treasury. And this is just a repetitive process. It's like, oh, my gosh, we're all going to default on our debt. So everybody in Washington gets afraid. It's like, oh, we can't default on our debt because that'd be terrible and I'd lose my job if we defaulted on the debt. So we've just got to pass this debt ceiling with no constraint whatsoever. 
and we keep just raising the debt ceiling and increasing debt. And then, you know, we do these continuing resolutions. And the problem with these continuing resolutions is that it just automatically raises spending by 8%. And, and so, you know, when you look at the fact that we haven't had a budget passed since Obama took off, President Obama took office, we've been running for 13 years now without a budget. We just do these continued resolutions. It's just become easier than actually going through the budget process of passing a budget, which is what we're supposed to do. It's just easier now to pass these continuing resolutions. And we just keep increasing spending. And then... Everybody runs around on their podiums going, you know, the debt's out of control. The debt's out of control. We got to do something. Vote for me. I'm going to fix it. And then we vote for them and they don't go do anything. Right. And so using those assumptions, and this is why Fitch downgraded the debt. The, the, the reason that Fitch downgraded our debt was nothing more than the lack of fiscal responsibility around the debt ceiling hike. You, you're issuing too much debt. You've got not enough income to pay for it. Over 100% of all the money that comes in goes to debt service and welfare. So you're going to keep having to issue debt just to fund all the other stuff in government. And if you take a look at the trajectory of debt through 2050, like I said, it's not pretty. And, you know, this is, you know, this is, is what weighs on uh, you know, a lot of people. I thought this quote from the Wall Street Journal was interesting. Everybody who reads the newspaper knows that the United States has a very serious long-term fiscal problem. Yes, everybody knows that. How many families do you know that have a whole lot of credit card debt, whole lot of debt, period, and just keep spending money? There's a lot of them. <laughs> And then they then they want to complain that, you know, it's not fair that, you know, rich people have more money than they do and this, that, and the other thing. But they have a fiscal spending problem, right? They just spend way too much money and buy to buy stuff they can't afford. You know, and, and look, I, I, I know these people, right? I, they, I have people like this live in my neighborhood. They have I, I know what they do for a living. And then they've got, you know, a hundred thousand dollar car sitting in their driveway. Right. Just no fiscal responsibility whatsoever. Well, government's the same way. The only difference is that with the government, we can just print money. So we just keep spending more. And again, everybody says, oh, we've got a Everybody knows we have a fiscal problem. There's nobody that doesn't know we have a fiscal problem. But everybody also says, well, you know, if I want to get elected, I've got to provide more stimulus, bonuses, checks, whatever you want to call it, to my constituents. So we just get further and further into debt. You know, so this isn't, again, we, this isn't the first time this, this downgrade has happened. We talked about this. Like, again, this is, we wrote this up in this weekend's newsletter. So if you haven't read the newsletter yet on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, then go download the newsletter and, and read it. It's, it's free. But this isn't the first time this happened. This happened back in 2011. S&P downgraded the debt for exactly the same reason. Raising the debt ceiling without any fiscal responsibility. 
and we've just been doing it ever since. And so, you know, this the, these downgrades don't mean a whole lot when you're the reserve currency of the world. And yes, we're still the reserve currency of the world. And yes, we're still going to be that way for a very long time. But there is a point to where debt matters. And look, we're probably to that point. And the more debt that we have, the slower the economic growth rate is going to be. And that's going to lead to worse levels of economic prosperity for people. This divide between the rich and the poor will get larger, right? It's just a function of math. This isn't a function about some nefarious outcome of rich people versus poor people. There's some of that in there for sure. But it's all about policy at the end of the day. We have the, we have the ability to make productive investments in the economy using debt, to create better economic prosperity, create more jobs, generate more income, those type of things. But there's not really a will to do that because what voters want is just to give them free stuff. Give me free stuff, I'll vote for you. That doesn't work out well long term. We all know that, right? But this is why you have so many people voting for socialism. It's like, oh, well, capitalism sucks. It's clearly broken because I don't have any money and the rich people have all the money. So obviously socialism is a better structure. Except nobody ever does the research about what happens to socialistic societies all around the world. And nobody does the math. You know, I always find this interesting. You know, a lot of people that are complaining about not having enough money, you know, they make thirty, forty thousand dollars a year in income and that certainly is not a lot of money here in the United States, and that certainly makes it difficult to buy a half a million dollar house when you only make thirty or forty thousand dollars a year. And so these people complain about capitalism and go, "Well, capitalism's obviously broken because I can't afford these things. That's not fair." But they're making thirty, forty thousand dollars a year, and so they go, "Well, I'd rather I'd rather have a socialist economy." And it's interesting because, you know, my son lived in Germany. He now lives in the U.K., and we have these conversations. And, you know, people here is like, well, you know, I want a health care system like Europe. Okay, it's free, right, free health care, sort of. It's not. You know, I want subsidized housing. I want all these other things. I want this kind of socialist idea. Because obviously that's better. At least the government's paying for this stuff that I want, right? See, government's paying for stuff I want. And so I want that rather than capitalism where I have to work for it. But see, what people understand is that if you're making thirty dollars to $40,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of income earners worldwide. Think about that for a moment. In the U.S., if you make $20,000 a year, $30,000 a year, $40,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of income earners worldwide. So all those systems that you're voting for and all those systems that you're wanting, right, socialism, communism, whatever, you're in the top 1% of income earners worldwide because those systems don't generate economic wealth. But we're slowly pushing the economy that way by issuing more and more unproductive debt. Now, this is not news to you. We've talked about this on the show numerous times. But the CBO report showing the trajectory, and I'm, I'm writing an article on this right now in re reference to the direction and trend of interest rates and, and what happens with interest rates with debt. 
but the but the the trend of debt issuance is not exciting to say the least and this is you know we we come back and we and and it's like well you know this is just going to keep going it's like and, and this will eventually crater the economy and this is going to create all these other problems and the answer is you know we can look at japan as a microcosm they're running well ahead of where we are right now but you know we're heading on the same path. We have the same demographic issue. We've got the same uh, social welfare system issue, pension system. We've, we've got the same issues as Japan. Yes, there's some differences between our country, but there's a lot of similarities in terms of debt and the outcome of debt issuance and the trend of interest rates and, and what happens with economic prosperity. And none of it's great. But we keep voting for the same people. And, and it's the clear definition of insanity, right? We, we keep voting for the same people expecting a different outcome. And these same people that we keep voting for keep telling us that they're going to go to Washington and, boy, they're going to fix this. They're going to put the wheels back on this wagon. You just watch, right? And they do nothing. And the problem keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And, and, and again, look, the, the issue is always the same is that, and this is, uh, it was kind of interesting because the Wall Street Journal concluded, this sort of problem was described by policymaker Michelle Walker in her 2016 book, The Gray Rhino, which was the English language bestseller in China. Unlike an out of the blue crisis dubbed a black swan, a gray rhino is a very probable event with plenty of warnings and evidence that is ignored until it's too late. And that's when we'll fix the problem. All right, be right back after the break. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show, of course. I'm Rose Lance Roberts. Uh, Brand always sticks interesting stuff on my uh, kind of morning show notes, and you put a a graphic of futuristic movie timelines. And it's interesting because, you know, we always watch these movies. And again, some of these, you know, Clockwork Orange, Escape from New York. Remember that with Snake Plissken played by Kurt Russell. And, you know, when you look back at those movies, these were made at a time where it was at some point in the future, right? This was going to be the outcome. And uh, like, for instance, with Escape from New York, it was, 19, you know, the future time was 1997, where New York is completely shut down. It's just a crime-ridden, you know, overrun prison at that point. But basically, they've just surrounded it, and all the criminals are in New York. And, you know, fortunately, that didn't completely come to pass, although, <laughs> although they'd be close now. Uh, 2001, obviously, a space odyssey didn't quite occur in 2001. Still don't have uh, runaway psychotic computers just yet. The Postman, I thought was interesting. Kevin Costner, uh, kind of the, you know, the world has now had a, this kind of apocalyptic, apocalyptic outcome, and they're back to delivering the mail 
by horseback. And this was set in 2013, RoboCop 2015. Um, so where are we today, right? For those future movies, right? What movies were in the past that were set for like this year, and next year? Where, where are we right now? Um, Rollerball. But see, most people won't even know these movies, right? <laughs> this is the thing. Rollerball was an awesome movie. James Caan, awesome movie. Uh, you know, is basically a combination of, of what what do you what 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 do you call it? a roller derby, right? Yeah. It was yeah. it was a violent version of roller derby um, that was set in uh, 2018. 2019 was Blade Runner. 2020 was Soylent Green, right? Where we are now converting people to food, which you know may not be too far off now that you now have to start reading your labels on your food packaging because there is a push to start including insects into as part of food fillers. So you need to make mm -hmm. sure what you're actually consuming. So we're not too far away. They just won't put, you know, humanoid on <laughs> yet, yet <laughs> on packages. Um, but you know, it's still coming up movies, movies that are coming up in the not too distant future. Children of men, 2027, uh, kind of apocalyptic end of the world scenario where, uh, population can't have children. Uh, 12 Monkeys for 2028. That was, of course, uh, Bruce Willis uh, coming back in time to try to stop a viral out of a virus, right? That was going to wipe out the planet. Maybe not too far away from that, considering what we just went through with the whole pandemic shutdown. Um, Demolition Man with with uh, Denzel, uh, not Denzel, uh, sorry, Wesley Snipes and Sylvester Stallone. I can't believe I remember some of these. V for Vendetta. I'm pretty impressed, man. Yeah. You're, you're knocking them out. Minority Report. Mm -hmm. Now, we're not too far away from this one, though. Now, Minority Report has, has, was, was with Tom Cruise, and, of course, that was about the pre-crime, right? We're going to try to stop crime before it happens, and they had these cognates that could foresee the future, right? And then they would use that data to go arrest somebody before they actually committed a crime. And Seattle actually tried to do this. Just recently, they tried to do a little bit of this pre-crime work to try to use what you're posting on the Internet and those type of things to try to stop you from committing crime before it happens. And, then of course, the other side of that was retinal eye scans and all this other stuff, which is now becoming a thing. Right. So there's a new there's a new cryptocurrency out that you it's trying to determine the difference between a humanoid and a robot. Artificial intelligence, and it uses an eye scan technology for that. So, you know, maybe not too far away from Minority Report just yet. Just saying. Thank goodness we still have some time to go before we get to Planet of the Apes and Dune. That's set pretty far out there. So we've got some time. That's another couple hundred years. And Barbarella. Oh, yeah. Nobody will remember Barbarella. <laughs> that was Farrah Fawcett? No, no. Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda. Yes. Jane Fonda with Barbarella. That's set sometime way out there in the future. But movies, <laughs> it, movies you should go watch. <laughs> right. Today you look at them, you're like, man, this is a terrible movie. Back then it was, that was the thing. Star Trek. We still got a ways to go to get there. That was 20, uh, 2387 to get to Star Trek. Yeah. So a couple hundred more years. But I don't know. Elon Musk is working fast on that front. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see. I mean, he's already launched a Tesla towards, you know, he's already trying to electrify it's, Mars. It's so out there. It's out there. So anyway, interesting graphic, though. But it is, it is always interesting. You know, a lot of these movies that, you know, we have, 
And if you go back and really look at, at Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek back in the 1960s when it first launched, there's a lot of the technology that they were that Gene Roddenberry had actually thought about back in the 1960s that came to pass. You know, you take a look at the flip phone, the flip communicators, and those became flip phones and you know microwaves and those type of things. So, just kind of just kind of interesting that sometimes the visions that these people have for creating science fiction leads to actual inventions. You know, later on, of course, now that we know UFOs are real. You know, I can just imagine little green men coming down and going, men and women of Earth, and some guy holds his hands up, I identify as neither! And they go, we're out of here. Yeah. We have failed with this experiment. <laughs> They've been by here before. They just locked the doors when they yeah, were by. Exactly. Yeah. They're just going to come back and burn the whole thing down. It's like <laughs> they were supposed to get smarter. They went backwards. Don't know what happened. Anyway, um... So the one thing to pay attention to here, uh, like I said, this week is inflation report on Wednesday earnings, of course. And, you know, we'll kind of keep a watch on this market again, this kind of correctional process. We'll see what happens. Um, interest rates, of course, you know, kind of flirting at some of these higher levels right now. And that's had a lot of people concerned here as of late. Um, but again, you know, rates don't matter in the short term until they do. And this is really kind of the key thing about rates is, you know, a big debate about, you know, there's only one direction that rates are going to go ultimately, and that's lower for a whole variety of reasons. And the debt, as we were just talking about a minute ago, the debt is one of those. You just cannot sustain higher rates of debt in an environment that you have, right? Rates have to go lower to support economic growth that's based on debt. That's just a function of math. Now, it's interesting because there's been quite a few, you know, articles lately is like, well, rates have to go higher because of the debt. The more debt that we issue, then you're eventually buyers are going to go on strike and not want to buy the debt. The problem that that entails is that you're assuming the market is functioning organically and that the Bond vigilantes, so to speak, as they call them, these are the buyers of debt, are, are going, okay, well, you know, if you want me to buy more of your crappy debt, you're going to have to pay me a higher interest rate for that. The problem with that is that it doesn't include central banks and governments. Federal Reserve can't afford to have higher rates for long. And as soon as the economy buckles under higher rates, they will cut rates and they will force rates lower. And this is why Japan, as an example, is doing yield curve control. Why? Because rates have to remain low in Japan because of the amount of debt. They own 80% of the bond market. The government is going to continue to buy the debt to keep rates low. Have to. Because you can't keep issuing debt if rates go up. So all these theses about higher rates because of the debt are wrong because ultimately at the end of the day, governments and central banks will, will, will force interest rates lower if the rates don't fall by themselves because rates will track economic growth and inflation and higher higher levels of debt will lead to lower inflation less productivity weaker economic activity because your debt is non-productive now if you have productive debt different story but we have non-productive debt issuance so right now rates don't seem to matter at the moment but they will and they'll matter matter a lot at some point 
But this is all a function of the debt. And again, we've got I've got a couple articles coming out talking about debt rates, where they're holding, holding where they're heading to, and why. Uh, so just keep a watch on the website for that. I'll let you know. Realinvestmentadvice.com. But again, just you know, for right now, all that matters is is that we've got a lot of momentum in the markets, and there's nothing really at the moment that appears anyway like it will derail the markets. You need some type of exogenous, unexpected event to occur. And there just isn't anything at the moment that we know of. And again, this is it'll be something unexpected. You know, tomorrow I could be here on the show going, well, nobody expected that to happen last night. But here's what happened. The market's down big this morning because of that. Right. That's how that's what will trip up the market is something totally unexpected, something the market hasn't priced in. Right now, though, all the things that you're thinking about have been priced into the markets because the markets already know about it, too. If you've read about it, if you've heard about it, the market's already way ahead of you. So whatever you're worrying about, stop worrying about it. It's not a problem. The markets have that priced in. It's the thing you don't know about the market hasn't priced in. It's the thing the market doesn't know about that it hasn't priced in. That's the thing that will get you. And then when, when that occurs, then we'll have to react very quickly. We'll have to make some changes, hedge risk, et cetera. And then we'll go from there. But in the meantime, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Send your questions, comments, emails. Let us know what we can do for you. Always happy to do it. Uh, and in the meantime, live long and prosper. See you back here tomorrow. <laughs>